0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
0: This is Your Money on Business Radio.
1: Hello, welcome to your listening, Your Money, SiriusXM, Channel 132, Business Radio, that's powered by the Wharton School. And I'm Kent Smiths professor here at the Wharton campus in Philadelphia new episodes of the show premiere every Tuesday at 5 p.m Eastern We're still not taking live calls but if you're looking for a fee only advisor that I like you can go to my website Kentonmoney.com and if you can't find an advisor in your area again you can find one potentially. There for you. So my guest today is a friend of the show, uh, Patrick Cote, who is the founding partner at Asset Grade and a fee-only investment advisory firm. Uh, and Patrick is a alum of the Wharton School. And he's been. Uh, uh, back to campus, uh, maybe today virtually. Given uh, where MBA is a personal finance presentation, something he does almost every uh, year, and he's uh, often focuses on kind of what we call Henrys, that is high earners not yet rich, um, as part of asset grade. Uh, uh, Patrick, welcome back to the show.
0: Thanks, Grant. Uh, glad to be back.
1: We normally have you on a later segment, so we have you on the. Top of the segment this time, Uh, uh, and so we're going to really talk about not making predictions about you know (laughs) elections or so forth. But (laughs) there's a possibility that taxes could be going up, uh, you know, in in the near future, especially for the for the Henry types. So we're, you know, uh, uh, presidential candidate uh, Joe Biden talks about four hundred thousand dollar threshold for tax increases. I mean, where's the kind of the Henry? You know, cut uh, uh, off for for kind of income and
0: assets. So, well, it's it's it could be right around that level. So it does vary a little bit by region. So yeah. in some parts of the country, four hundred thousand is a heck of a lot of money. In other parts, it's 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 good, but it's not. It's by no means considered uh, rich. Uh, places like New York or, or uh, San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, but we typically see uh, mid six figures and up is uh, what we typically see for uh, for Henrys.
1: Yeah. For, and for an income yeah, and you're. It's certainly the case if you're living in New York and California. If you literally took uh, the candidate Biden's tax proposal, uh, seriously, you're talking about uh, a little increase in the income tax rate, back to thirty-nine percent marginal tax rate, but a lot. A lot of people don't understand is that the Social Security side has this what's called donut hole tax. That's another 12.4%. So if you're in California, New York, you may be paying a marginal tax rate about $400,000 of income, close to 65-ish percent, you know, uh, pretty easily there. So you know, in light of potential increases, also a change in capital gains, potentially raising the capital gains rate to more uh, ordinary income. Rates, you know, should be, one strategy, of course, is to think about maybe I should realize unrealized gains this year, pay at the lower capital gains tax rate. The interest rate is pretty low anyway. So it's like it's not like a big cost saving to have, you know, deferral into the future, you know, even on the current law. <laughs> and especially if you think that rates can go up, you know, w- w- your thoughts there.
0: Yeah, we're definitely having those kinds of conversations with clients and, uh, and and trying to be thoughtful about the right way to do it for each person. Uh, you know, it can really be, the situation can be different for everyone, obviously, because a lot of the time it might be a very concentrated position. So if somebody has been sitting on, you know, uh, stock, like if it's company stock or something where yeah. they have a, a big position in one company over time. You know, as an advisor, we're, we're always trying to encourage diversification anyway. So for something like this, uh, you can kill two birds with one stone and, you know, look to uh, reduce potential or, or, or avoid potential tax increases in the future and at the same time become more diversified. So it can actually be a good thing there. Um, of course, it, it can be quite expensive, too, if you start to do a lot all at once. Yeah. So it's, it, it's all about balancing that that, that trade off.
1: Yeah, I mean and especially for the your Henry type who maybe uh, uh, you know they have decent income but not a lot of assets maybe it won't be a huge realization but still if, uh, if you had a million or two in assets it could be a, a, a decent realization with the market you know increases um, but what do you think on the estate plan side I mean um, it, you know, right now we have a pretty generous threshold a Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Do you think people need to be taking, you know, uh, caution there, you know, with maybe where things will go?
0: Definitely. Um, you know, we we don't, uh, we actually do have some clients over the $23 million threshold, but that's, yeah. you know, most most of our clients are below that. And so uh, we, we're, we're encouraging many of our clients to actually review estate plans now because the um, it, the uh, especially for uh, for folks who are somewhere in that range in between, they might be in the you know the high nine uh, or the, the high uh, seven-figure uh, level of assets, so you know getting close to okay. ten million or so. It's worth setting up trusts. Um, it, it could often also be useful from a state tax perspective. So you know, my, I happen to be based in Massachusetts. It's actually a, a relatively low threshold for estate taxes at the state level here in Massachusetts. Right. million dollars so uh so it it can make sense for many folks to do that and the estate taxes will kick in you know with other like so with investment assets but also homes life insurance so it can quickly add up uh if you start looking across all the different things that that become part of someone's estate when they pass away so uh, so for a lot of folks it makes sense to review it now and and we're encouraging folks to do it now rather than wait because there could be uh, quite a few people all trying to call a state attorneys after the election. If, uh, uh yeah. if they're concerned about that.
1: Are, are you concerned at all with a lot of people trying to realize capital gains right after the, the election and the impact on market prices? Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's exactly the kind of conversation we're having with a number of clients. Um, and so the question becomes, you know, what are they going to do with the proceeds from that too? I mean, they'll have to keep some aside for taxes, obviously. So, you know, if yeah. you, if you, think about people who might be paying 25-30% all in for taxes depending on where they live uh, for the capital gains tax I'm talking about it uh, then at at that point they they might be putting some back in the market but obviously to avoid tax loss harvesting rules they'd have to not go back into the same investment they'd have to go into something something a little bit different at least and then they probably
1: yeah unless they they stay out of the market for 30 days which it may be you know challenging to do
0: right yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there could definitely, uh, you know, there, there might already be volatility with other things going on with the election process. And so, uh, so it could be, uh, it could be quite a volatile period then.
1: Yeah, so you mentioned a little bit about company stock, you know, it can come in so many different forms, restricted shares and ESOP, ISOs, you know, the list goes on. I mean, what do you recommend? That you you said okay, people should be getting out of, you know, company stock anyway. I mean, is there ever a reason this you know, unless you've not vested, of course, you can't get out of it, um, that you would recommend people, you know, stay in or is it is kind of your rule? that the cost of diversification is so high to be, you know, so concentrated that if you can get out, you just always get out.
0: Yeah, uh, we, we typically do. And, you know, we really do uh, go through it that uh, kind of uh, option by option or stock by stock, if you will, for, for people as they, uh, as, as we look at their situation, because yeah. uh, there are all these rules that kick in. And, and as you know, it can get quite complicated to, for people to f- figure out exactly what they would get net net. Yeah. Uh, you know after all the taxes after everything is said and done and and what could happen too which which is uh, remarkable is they'll you know a lot of the time if they're working for these larger companies they'll have a, a company stock plan that they can log into in their brokerage account and there might be a, an account dedicated for it and it might show a specific amount like you know they might log into whatever brokerage firm and it might show like a million dollars in company stock there However, when everything is said and done, it might be way, way less than that. So it's actually really hard for them to figure out what it is. So between vested versus unvested, right. and then the portion that would be taxed immediately. Uh, so it can be significantly less than whatever they, you know, the, the big amount is when they first see it. So what we'll try to do is we'll look at you know, a lot of the times are different tranches that kick in too. So they might have gotten a grant here and another grant there, and some might be options. Some might be restricted stock units. So we'll work with them to figure out you know mm-hmm. what should they do for each one of those uh each one of those um, uh holdings and then uh look at what the tax cost might be for them too because sometimes the um sometimes it's a relatively small cost other times it could actually be quite a large cost if they if they do something today versus hold it just a little bit longer until they hit certain um certain points in their schedule
1: yeah yeah it, it it's uh like you said there's it, there's so many different types of employer based stock it's often very very challenging. So if you're joining a new firm, uh, you know, different advisors have different rules about, you know, investing in that in that firm. In some cases, of course, it's part of your compensation package and they want to trying to incentivize you, and things like that. But in some cases, you even have the opportunity to invest more. Um, you, you know, if if you want to, then you know, sometimes there's different rules like the advisors will apply. Say, you know, if you get it twenty five percent less or fifty percent less, and it depends if it's a publicly traded company we're talking about or a non publicly traded company. I mean, what are your thoughts there? As you know, people are often moving right now. They're in very fluid time. Often joining new companies. If they're given the opportunity, should they invest in the company stock? And what type of discount are you're looking for to kind of pay for the the lack of diversification?
0: Uh, well, that's that's definitely a big consideration. So, uh, in terms of the discount, we might apply like a thirty percent rule. Uh, and then, so that's you know how much of a haircut you would apply to something for, because it's private as opposed to being public uh, for right. the valuation that they're given. And then the other thing to consider is actually how much of their net worth are they tying to that one company? So yeah. especially a situation where if their uh, household, a uh, big part of their household income is coming from company XYZ, and then they're being asked to put additional money in. And I've had these conversations recently with some clients there's another consideration of how much do they want to have all you know in terms of eggs in one basket and Mm. so that's another thing where we'll we'll generally discourage more than say 20 to 30 percent of all the assets even if it looks like a really really good investment just because there's you know anything can happen to any one company uh so even if it's a fantastic investment you just want to be careful about having too many eggs in that one basket especially if their paycheck is coming from there as well
1: yeah. And so if you're leaving this, you know, one employer going to the next, we talked about, you know, potentially buying at the new em- employer. And yes, I've heard, you know, rules like the ones you you've described, like, you know, if it's not a publicly traded company, maybe a bigger haircut in the price than if it's a publicly traded company before you should be willing to absorb that lack of diversification. Let's think about the current company that you're leaving. You have some invested shares and options and uh, uh, sometimes those options, you know, uh, haven't expired yet, you know, and so the the question is: We normally we think of, you know, the option has value. You should never exercise before because option either you give away some optionality value. Uh, it, but what what's your thoughts in this case if someone's actually leaving the employer?
0: And that that is a great point. And that that definitely happens. And so what we'll try to do, and actually some of the tools are getting uh, a little bit better about that now too, to make it a bit easier for people to make uh, specific decisions around that. So some of the uh, some of the options where, uh, you know, they're not really, it, they're, they're not far in the money, and they have a lot of time left to go, which would mean there's a lot of uh, time value left in that option. Yeah. Uh, those ones tend to be more attractive to hold on to versus the other ones that might be, you know, might have an expiration date coming up in the near future, or they might be way deep in the money. So they tend to have less, there's, you know, there's still the same uh, intrinsic value if they exercise the option, but there's less of that potential value down the road. So, so we'll encourage clients to look at it that way and try to pick off the options that have uh, uh, have less future value potentially.
1: Yeah, and uh, finally, uh, you know, shifting gears a little bit but it's often true for younger uh uh people we often think of them as health savings accounts paired with a high deductible health plan um you know as we've mentioned this show in the past is that you know you get this pretty incredible tax benefit if you use it for medical expenses which almost everybody's going to have in the future anyway um, you pay it you make contributions you know uh, for your to your HSA, maybe even subsidized by your employer, and on a pre-tax basis, you pull out the money, um, you know, without paying taxes a, as well. So it's even better in many ways than like a 401k. Uh, what is your thoughts about? Is this a particularly advantageous time that people should be thinking about? Maybe. Sh- and right now we're coming up for benefit renewals and a lot of companies. I mean they're going through um, the healthcare decisions right now that'll kick in and you know early January. Is maybe a now a time for maybe an, you as an employee to think about shifting over to an HSA?
0: Uh, it really is. Uh, we, we we love them. Uh, you know, they've got, as you mentioned, the, the triple tax benefit. The only thing that that uh, the only investment vehicle that that does, where yeah. it's pre-tax going in, no taxes as you're building the the returns along the way, and then you tax-free on the back end when you withdraw, as long as you use it for medical expenses. So it's really attractive from that perspective. That being said, they, they there is more of a hassle with with actually using them, and yeah. so. For for you know, I think for some families it doesn't make as much sense. Like if they have uh, specific uh, healthcare needs today and know that they're uh, you know that they um, will, will be incurring significant expenses, or they may have specialists that they need to go to, and they you know those folks may not be uh, as, as uh, able to work with um, with the expenses incurred through these HSA plans. So there are some hassles to them, but for people who aren't aren't constrained with that then we do encourage people to actually use it especially if they have the uh, cash flow to handle potential uh the the potential high deductibles that would come up
1: yeah and i've done calculations of these in the past and found that almost regardless your medical situation Almost always better off on a dollar basis using the HSAs, at least, you know, even the one here at Penn. But you identified kind of the non dollar issue, and that is often the hassle. I mean, pay, saving paperwork. And I've known people, uh, somebody right now who just had some shoulder surgery, and the different providers knew he had an HSA high deductible plan. They're all saying, can we be, you know, Part of that cash the deductible, we don't want to wait for the insurer. They're all kind of lining up, and he has to manage that. It it, it gets to be a bit, a little bit of a hassle, but nonetheless, uh, potentially big cost saving if you got the time. So, Patrick, fantastic job once again. Thanks for coming back on the show.
0: Thanks for having me. It was great chatting with you again.
1: And if you want to learn more about Patrick and his work and his company, you can simply go to his website, assetgrade.com. It's also on my website, kentamoney.com.
0: For more guest interviews, check out our
1: Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.